BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Cameron Esposito, and welcome to Earwolf Presents, featuring an episode of my show, Query. Well, actually, it's two episodes, sort of Frankenstein together. Well, Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. I guess this is the monster. March is Women's History Month, and to celebrate, this is an episode featuring Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach. I love both of them. They're good friends of mine, but also Glennon is one of the most successful nonfiction writers in the last couple of years. And Abby is the greatest soccer player of all time. Like literally, more goals in international play than anyone else. I love these two, and they are also strong female leaders. They lead by example, they are cool as hell, and um, I can't wait for you to find out more about them. You can check out my show Query on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. On this show, I always have folks introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Well, I might be the first guest you've ever had that got a text message from her manager with my own bio for this very moment. <laughs> um, and I just want to make it known to your your followers and your listeners that I am not reading this. This is off the top of my head. From my <laughs> I mean, all right, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's hear. Uh, let's hear that yeah. off the cuff so intro. My name. My name is Abby Wambach. You may know me from the time that I played soccer for the United States for many years. It's It felt like centuries. It felt like such a long, fun, amazing career. Um, I've got a couple gold medals. I've got World Cup championship. Um, I've written a couple books now. One is coming out in April. Check it out. It's called Wolfpack. Um, but I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that I am what I call um, the wife of Glennon Doyle. Um, <laughs> my wife is amazing, and she has um, really brought me back to life in a lot of ways. So that's the thing that I kind of attach myself to the most um, and the thing I'm maybe most proud of. There's so many cool things to discuss in that very off-the-cuff intro, but I want to start Abby, by um, well, I got a chance to meet you. We did um, some live shows together for a part of something that's you're called. You're so funny, by the way. You are so funny. Like you're brilliant, but you're just your fuck your timing. Can I swear on this? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, your timing is so on point, and you're funny, and I just I feel like we see the world very similarly. So um, all of your jokes really landed on me. Oh, thank you for saying that. You know. 
I don't know what it's like for you. I'll say when you started talking, I was like, oh my God, humiliating. I think she's about to give me a compliment. Like my shoulders changed. I'm just like, oh, like how am I going to survive this? Um, you did it. Yeah, Good job. I did it. Well I got done. to the other side. I had a lot of fun with the, those shows that we did. It's like a, it's um a, it's a group of people and I was the only stand-up on the on the dates that we did. And that's like a very fun situation for me to do stand up in. Cause I feel like I actually, I actually like that vibe standing up, like getting up in the middle of um, some folks who are funny, but maybe not telling jokes specifically. Cause I feel like I'm like, Oh man, if you liked those witticisms, you're going to love these jokes that have been <laughs> crafted over years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. it's like, like it's a perfect platform for you to just crush. Right? That's like exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Because we actually brought a real comic and put a real comic like yourself on stage. You know, the together tour is what we actually first met doing. Um, it's one of those things that I feel really proud of. I've been a part of it for a few years now. And my wife is actually the co-creator of it. Uh, and the whole idea was to get women, however you identify yourself, to be celebrated and to celebrate um, from different walks of life, from different uh, art, artists and industries. Uh, so you yourself found yourself to be the, the actual comedian. I try to be funny. My jokes don't land like, like yours do, but um, it was really fun to, to be able to share the stage with you and to see how real comedians actually work. Well, what I, what I also took away was watching, you know, I don't, I don't know how, I would imagine that for you that is like, such a monumental shift. I mean, I, I'm, I know that in your, well, I don't know. I would imagine, I would guess that in like your role as a leader on your team and then also as somebody who is so famous for the sport that they played that you had to speak in front of people a lot. But was that often live? Like I, like I imagine, you know, you're like, you have a lot of experience on TV. You have a lot of experience in the spotlight. Do you have a lot of experience speaking in front of large groups of people live? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That's a good question because I think what I was able to do on the field gave me a platform off the field. And um, I think that you probably can understand this, that what your craft is, right, what you're good at, what you are probably most known for in the world of women, that we can't be one-dimensional um, in a lot of ways. And I, sp I think especially at the early stages of women in sport, you know, 40 years ago, Title IX happened. And um, it was one of those, it's been a long period of time that women have had to continually fight for what we currently now have. Um, and so I, had, I knew at, at a certain point in my career, I had to develop um, not, not a, a speaking uh, ability, but the ability to get up and to tell our story. And, and I think that's, I like can't, I like, didn't, I never thought of that Abby till this moment, till you just said that to me. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I think that many women probably don't understand that they've been having to do 17 different things to enable them to do their one craft. Right. Um, you know, men don't have that same uh, pressure or, or responsibility and that is part of the long fight that women are continually having to go on and these, these um, requirements that it takes for a woman to actually be successful is outrageous. So the idea for me to get up and speak, my hope is that one day, you know, that, that next player who retires won't 
need to have to have that same um, skill set that that covers this wide range because some people are stage fright, some people are terrified getting up in front, some people aren't eloquent, some people don't like that, some people just want to play their sport or just do comedy, you know, and they should be able to do that. Uh, so it's going to take some more time, I think, but um, you know, it's not lost on me that I was lucky to be able to get on stage and to have confidence on stage and then have a story to tell, like have a message. Um, that's that's also kind of important. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think about that in my own job, of course, because I've lived my job. You know, I know the things that I had to do um, that are tangential to my my specialty. Um, and I'm and I and I like it. And I I think that there are some benefits. But I think you pointing out the <laughs> like, of course, this is true. And I think I've probably even said this, but the pressure on women in your field to like explain the job that they're doing as they do it like that's what that's what it feels like in comedy a lot it sometimes I get this question a little bit less but I don't know five or ten years ago there was it, every interview would include like what's it like being a woman in comedy and so it's it is completely it's a it's just a lot of energy to have to explain what you're doing as you're doing it and I think that's a little bit what you're talking about too and yeah and it's frustrating because you know, you spend 10 minutes explaining what a woman's place is in comedy or in sport. And, you know, I, I, my future wish for, you know, the next generation of women athletes and women comedians um, is that they don't have to waste any freaking time explaining what it's like to be a woman in comedy or a woman in sport. They're just an athlete or they're just a comedian. Like let's drop stupid pronouns that, um, people can't understand. We're freaking human beings. We go through the same stuff. We travel, we sacrifice, we train, we blood, sweat, and tears, the exact same. So, um, you know, that's kind of my mission over the rest of my life. I've kind of made a new career for myself, trying to make sure that the people who come behind me don't struggle in the same ways that I did and, and maybe the same ways that you did. Was it always soccer for you? Like you're a little kid. What were you playing as a little kid? I was playing anything, anything that could yeah. get me attention, right? Like, so I was, I, and I still am a, a total attention whore. My wife, my wife says that I'm competing with the 10-year-old, our 10-year-old daughter, <laughs> or who gets, she's like, you're actively trying to get more attention than the child, the youngest child in our family. Like, I don't know what that means, but um, yeah, I was always a, a really great athlete, and um, I think that gave me a sense of confidence, a sense of self and um, an ability that not everybody else had. So it gave me that, I think that other element that some people have inside of them to kind of continue to pursue that, that elusive dream of whether it be playing in the Olympics or whatever, whatever it is, your, your, your end dream goal, like the best thing that could ever happen in, in, in the thing that you love to do. And I grew up in a young and a huge family. I was the youngest of seven. Um, so watching my brothers and sisters play sports, you know, I just kind of always had this knowing that like, oh, I'm going to be able to do that a little bit better than them. Um, Are they athletic? Like, do they, did they, yeah. did they have sport, sport career, even, even in like, you know, high school, college sort of a thing, did they play sports? Yeah. My sister Beth actually went to Harvard and played basketball at Harvard. Um, she was one of the number one three point shooters mm. in the country at one point in college 
Um, that was a very big claim to fame in my family uh, until, of course, I went to college and started winning national championships and stuff. <laughs> Eat um, it, Beth. <laughs> my other sister, yeah, my other sister, she played soccer at Xavier University. Oh, that's where my so, parents went and met. No way. Yeah, no, for real. Yeah, my parents went to Xavier and met there. That's amazing. Yeah. I think I, 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 have they ever been to, what is it called? Um, it's not Six Flags. Is it Six Flags? Oh, um, Cedar Point. I don't know. I'm naming places that are in Ohio. I have no idea. Well, it was like a, it was a, a an amusement park that had this really crazy big Kings Island. That's oh, sure. Yes, they've been to Kings Island. Yeah, that <laughs> huge. I went there when I visited my sister. It's all I remember about Xavier. Um, wow. but yeah, I came from a really athletic family. My brothers played sports all through uh, high school, and then kind of went to work for my dad and went to college and never really pursued it beyond that. So I was lucky. I was lucky to be involved in a family that was very sports centric and valued sport. Um, given that I ended up doing it as a profession. Yeah. What about your um, parents? Did they, did they have some natural athleticism or any, I mean, I'm imagining like what, what you, what you telling me those facts, um, the context that that's giving me is that you weren't even like the first woman in your family to have, to play at a college level, that's, I mean, that's extremely unusual. And then especially like in the time when you and I were growing up, cause like yeah. now, like, I mean, this is still true now and it right. was more true then. And this is not, right. there's not a huge gap between now and then right. in terms of time. Right. But yeah, well, um, my dad was, my, my dad was a super athlete. Um, he was really quick, fast. I think he ran track and he played football and wrestled. But after high school, went to go work for his father. Um, my my great grandfather and grandfather had like a, a a farm stand, like a little farm stand, and then it turned into a farm. So um, my dad took over that business and never got to kind of see the fruits of his sporting labor. So I think that he lived quite vicariously through his daughters, which. Um, which is so evident in the way that all of my, my sister Beth and Laura and myself were very independent and were very strong. And my dad will take complete credit for that. <laughs> um, but I have to be honest and kind of give most of the credit to my mom. You know, being a, a wife back in the, gosh, I don't even, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom, raised and, and raised us Catholic. Um, so she had a she had a, a unique set of value systems in place, and I think one thing that she really broke free from, wanted us to break free from, is this whole idea that we needed to be reliant on a man um, to be happy. Um, you know, and I think that was something all of us really took seriously. My mom always told me, you know, don't, you know, you need to make your own money, and you need to put yourself in a position where you're not you know, serving only somebody else, like you have to take care of yourself. So I learned those real values. And I think my sister's, my eldest sister is a doctor and now actually doesn't practice anymore and is the mother of six children. And then my next is Laura, she's, she's a, a teacher. So, you know, I think my, my parents did a really good job of raising us and they are not without fault. You know, I mean, God love them. They did the very, very best that they could. Um, but I think, you know, they, they really did put inside of, of us girls a strength, a, an idea, a value system of independence. And that really has 
kind of been with me throughout my life. Do you know where your mom got that idea? Like, I, f- I think about, you know, her uh, telling you <laughs> to make your own money or something like that. That's like a radical concept. Yeah. She got Still it because now. I think, she, I, yeah, I think she was pissed mm. at having to ask my dad for money. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good uh, you know, and cause and effect. Worked <laughs> she worked as hard as he did, right? He would go to work in the morning and come home and she had seven children to, to deal with. And, and a lot of a lot of people out there would say she worked 10 times harder than he did because he wasn't dealing with little humans running around and making a mess of everything. So, you know, I think that I think that anger probably is a huge marker for her that allows her to to make decisions and, and allowed her to treat us and to parent us and guide us in a, in a kind of a like put it in your words, radical way. Hmm. Well, this is all like, I, I mean, I can, I can relate to a ton of the stuff that you're saying. You know, I was raised really Catholic. Um, my dad, my dad always wanted to be a singer and then, you know, he's a lawyer. So it's d- definitely, there was a time in, when I lived in Chicago and that's where he lives when um, I used to set up shows where my little sister's also a singer and my family would, um, <laughs> I would throw these um like, Italian themed shows <laughs> where my family would come and be backup singers for me. Uh, as a, and by the way, just so you know, they love this job. <laughs> and, you know, it is, it is like very, it's a very specific thing. Um, having, you know, in my case, I'll say having like my dad made all these choices to work hard to like further our, um, social standing in like send me to private school, things like that. Like send me to Catholic school. Like to, you know, he worked his ass off to like shoveling asphalt to put himself through law school so that he could send me to Catholic school, which like, honestly, pretty sure that wasn't worth it. But, um, and then, you know, so that then I could like turn around and like live the dream that he never got to live. I mean, there's a lot of, I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, yeah. It feels I, so like lot like there's so much there was so much lost along the way. Hmm. Them trying to do right by us, but we have to remember, and this is something I have continually come back to, and and especially with my relationship with my parents and my mom, you know, it wasn't easy coming out to them. It wasn't easy um, getting them to understand that I was going to do what I wanted to do, whether or not they believed it to be sin or um, whatever it was like, I always have to keep reminding myself that our parents are good people and they were, they were doing what they felt was best at the time, because we have to remind ourselves that like, it's easy, like hindsight is 2020, right? And it's easy to look back on the the history and the story of our lives and, and point out all the things that went wrong and point blame to our parents for putting us in these crazy positions. But at the time, they were really truly feeling and thinking that um, that it was the best decision for us. Now, could they, if they could go back and change things now, knowing who we've turned into, of course I think that they probably would make different choices. But they were assuming at the time that we were going to turn into what would be quote unquote your average normal human being, right? And, um, and I think that that is really important for parents out there when they're making certain decisions about how to guide their children through their lives is you always have to remember that your kid could be of that, that's however small percent, it could 
your kid could be trans, your kid could be bi, your kid could be uh, homosexual, whatever it is, whatever marginalized group, you have to remember that it's possible. So you never want to have to have your children unlearn stuff that you force them to learn as a child. Yeah, that's real. I mean, um, well, when did that, when, when did you, when did that happen for you? When did you come out to your folks? Like just general age range. I was 22. Um, I told my mom, I went, I took her to a Mexican restaurant because I felt like I got to do this in public for some reason. Oh, I did it at the Nordstrom Cafe, but it yeah. wasn't my, my mom asked me, but anyway, yes, public, <laughs> the Nordstrom Cafe, tuna sandwiches, that. keep going. Um, I, you know, and, and I, I, I came out with it in the most strong way. Like, you know me, you know me a little bit. Like, I'm just like, my personality is like, I am basically all or nothing. So I wasn't going to like whimper into the conversation. I didn't want her to have any reason to doubt what I was saying. So I basically said to her, mom, I need to tell you something. I am a lesbian. So I used the strongest word that you can use that makes it, you know, undeniable to hear. And she, of course, you know, she, she did her very best under the circumstances. I think my mom has had known for a long time, um, but her belief system made it harder for her to hear those words, right? So she told me a few times, like, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, and, you know, 10 years later, I had to come out again and remind her I, I still am a lesbian, you know, Ma. Um, and it was kind of our 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 little secret that we we didn't share with the rest of the family. Although I told my brothers and sisters, and they were like, "Yeah, cool, we've known forever," right? <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, that was that was when I was 22, and then I think maybe when I was 29, like seven or eight years later, I had to you know, remind her that this was still the case and things had not changed and this was my life. When 22, what was going on in your, in the rest of your life at that time? Like, um, I'm trying to timestamp, like, were you out of, what was going, yeah, what was going on yeah, for you? I had just left <clears throat> college to enter into the uh, Women's Professional Soccer League. It was the, it was then called the WSA and there's been a few iterations since um, in 2003 is when I started to get more um, in, invitations to play on the national team. In 2004, 2003, 2004, I was mostly a mainstay on the on the national team. So once the national team stuff started to happen, then it was real easy to sweep um, my sexuality under the rug and not talk about it um, because I had this other massive focal point that I, that. I could continue to relate with my parents around. Um, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and if I were to be able to go back in time, I would do things differently because, you know, that was that was also me not wanting to actually deal with the relationship that I was trying to cultivate with my parents. And so it's taken, you know, 15 or 20 years to actually have these hard conversations. Um, and, you know, being brought up Catholic, I was, and, and I've, I've just figured this out. Um, my struggle was, I felt like at the time I was having to decide between my mom and God or myself. Um, and, you know, up until six months ago, I'm almost 39. So up until six months ago, I had this revelation like, 
oh, actually God is not separate than me and um, God is not separate than my mom and God is not the church, right? So I had been feeling like um, this, this, this guilt, you know, this Catholic guilt that we're all made to fear and, and, and feel less than and shame about about myself and I was just getting it really mixed up. So I'm glad that I cleared that up and it's actually allowed me to have um, a little bit of healing with my relationship with my mom because, you know, she's getting older and I don't want to have things that are left unsaid. So, you know, for all of your listeners, having the hard conversations now um, will, first of all, save the conversation for, you know, you're just saving the conversation for later or you, or worst case scenario, you won't ever have it. And then, um, you know, God knows what happens after that. So have the hard conversations with your parents or your family now um, and get them to, to see you and get them to, to hear what you want to say. Um, because you're going to have to say it eventually. Might as well just get it over with. Eat the frog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a particular set of circumstances, though, that to what you're talking about. I was a little younger. I was, um, but not much. I was 19. But a lot of things were different between what you're describing and my situation. I was, you know, still in college that my folks were helping me pay for. And um, it was a Catholic college. And so I was still getting messaging there. Um, like you couldn't you couldn't come out. You could be kicked out of school. And, um, <clears throat> so like for me, that actually, to your point, um, it did sort of force me to have – well, first I'll say, I'll say this. Sometimes it's just like straight up not safe to have some of these conversations. But you're talking about when it's safe yeah. but you're yeah, just making a choice or whatever. And of I course. get that. I think because of the specifics of what I'm talking about, I did have to have those conversations like very – in a very um, focused way just because um, like I wasn't – I didn't have any, I didn't have this other thing going on or like a job or um, something else that was pulling me in a different direction. I had to just like kind of work it out with them over, over, you know, from like 19 to 25. Um, really and you were in a controlled environment too, because mm -hmm. you were being, you were asking them for their resources to go to, to this crazy college that's not allowing you to actually be yourself because of their belief system. So it's it, it, and I understand every situation is very different. Obviously, um, safety is the number one priority, but yeah, um, that's hard. And and um, I'm glad that you had those conversations. You know. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a lot of compassion for you because like the pressure cooker of all of that kind of just you know you're right. Like it did. Like by the time I was 25, I was living back in Chicago and dating a uh, a woman that they liked, and it was just like okay, now we you have to get over this now. Like it was just, it was so, it was such a finite amount of time because it was so big. And I'm imagining like in your case, um, yeah, that's a, that's a long time to sort of carry that, um, that like dance that you're doing where, cause I certainly did that during that time, you know, like there was a, you know, I went home for Thanksgiving and didn't bring my partner because, or like brought somebody in. She was my friend, you know, like I did that all, but it was all just very condensed. And um, I certainly know how stressful that is to try to figure out like sort of who can hear what about your life, like who in your life can hear what things about your life. That com compartmentalization is, um, it's, it's so isolating. And, um, and I, 
I just have a lot of compassion for what I'm assuming you must have been going through at that time, which is a lot yeah. of a lot of like redirecting towards <laughs> soccer or whatever. Or well, uh, yeah. and, you, you know, know, I think that that also added a layer of pressure to the whole thing because I started to get a little bit more famous. My name was a little bit more out there, and so you know, my mom at one point just begged me not to come out publicly. Um, you know, and it's this whole idea of perception and the way that the outside world perceives your family and the way that I was raised and how that's going to now reflect on my parents. So I, and I have compassion for my mom also, but here's the thing, you know, it became this pressure cooker and that kind of led me down a really difficult path towards the end of my career. And a lot of things were kind of coming to, um, ahead for me and I was really struggling with alcohol and prescription pills um, and and so that was the other side of it where I was placating and wanting my mom's security and acceptance um, while all the while not listening to my own needs uh, and so I went the opposite direction and started making bad choices for my personal life for my personal body um, and so I think that there is, there has to be the balance of, and protection, the, there has to be protection in, in place for you and yourself that um, is, is long-term, right? Because, yeah. Uh, as soon as I started to struggle, you know, as soon as I actually started struggling and then, you know, when, when the shit actually hit the fan, I got a DUI, like my life completely changed because I got sober and um, I was able to actually have these hard conversations. Um, I was actually able to create boundaries and create a life for myself that felt really good because of my gayness, not in spite mm -hmm. of my And I think that I needed to get to that point, unfortunately. Um, I needed to get so low that I, I just had nothing else but needy, but the, the, the requirement of accepting who I was and accepting of what the life I wanted and then go out and, and, and create it. So, you know, as much as I would love to sit here and blame my parents for every little thing that ever went wrong in my life, like I am here now um, because of them, right? Like some of that struggle, though it was hard and though it was very real, has allowed me to get stronger in ways that I wouldn't have. Right. And so it's not for, it's not all for not. Right. Like, and I, I understand too, that everybody's story is different and everybody's pain is different and everybody's reaction to it is different. But for me, I want to be the narrator of my story. And in order to do that, I have to take control of all the aspects of it. And I don't want to, I don't want to blame. I don't want to give out any of the power that I've been able to curate for myself and create for myself. So I want to take that on myself and um, I guess be the strongest dyke I can be. <laughs> yes, be the strongest dyke you can be. always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Glennon Doyle. Am I supposed to say other things or just my name? That's what's kind of fun about it. It's choose your own adventure about, you know, like some people just say their name and other people might. Um, 
want to include certain things in how they describe themselves <laughs> or how they introduce themselves. I just mean like it literally could yeah. be like uh, your who you are as a human in your personal life, who you are in a human in your business life. I just it's like a it's a I fun don't feel game. like saying those things. You know I what? I just feel like saying I'm Glennon Doyle and F, yeah. I'm pretty sure about that. Well, I, you pretty are. Sure that's that. that's actually. <laughs> I, watch as I grab my chest. Um, well, some stuff that I can fill in uh, is that you're. I mean, folks are not going to be able to see this, but I can see that you are sitting in front of a blown up cover of your most recent book, Untamed. Mm-hmm. And I also look at this. Wow. Now it's also on your screen looking back at you. Um, here's the copy that you sent me. And Untamed is um, Untamed is a book that was released during these pandemic times. I know that you had begun just the very first steps of your book tour and then bagged a bunch of cities because it was an ever-changing landscape. I think you were two weeks ahead of me in terms of beginning touring stuff. So you had done a few things. Um, And the amazing thing, you know, is that the book uh, was a number one bestseller, um, is, you know, doing, performing phenomenally, like in in, uh, the print space, in audio, like it's just, it's really been a huge success during the time. It's it's the Reese's Book Club pick. But I guess I wanted to start by asking you, it struck me when I was thinking about today that you're actually somebody who has done a bunch of pivoting throughout your time as a business human. So yes, you had to pivot at the very beginning of a book tour, but I also just happen to know that you're even somebody who like started in a, in a blogging space and then had to transition mm-hmm. into, okay, now I'm a writer that writes books. Okay, now I'm a writer that writes books, but I also appear in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like for me right now, I'm really struggling with the additional pivoting, even though I'm a person who's pivoted in the past. How are you doing with that? I mean, <clears throat> that's how, now that you, that's how I should have introduced myself. Don't worry. <laughs> Glennon that's- Doyle. Pivoter. 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 But like permanent pivoter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cameron, not only that, but listen, okay. So I have three books out, right? Yes. But my first book was about, you know, basically like how to get well, not it was a memoir. It was how I got sober and created my little family, right? Yes. And then a few weeks before I went on tour with that book. My ex-husband now, my then husband told me that he'd been cheating on me our whole marriage. Okay. So I, right before that book tour, okay, so I had to go out and do that book tour immediately following that imploding news. Okay. Then my second book, Love Warrior, was about the recovering of that marriage. Okay. The the redemption, like it was being touted all over the place as a marriage redemption story. Right. And then a few weeks <laughs> before the release of that book, I fell madly in love with Abby. Okay. Abby Wambach, who is your wife that has also been a guest yes. on this podcast. Query. Yes. Who is our, yes. And so it, listen, I did an interview um, right before this release 
where the woman said to me, what do you think is going to happen at this book tour time? <laughs> I was like, oh, global pandemic. It's my fucking fault. It's my fault. So, um, so yeah, we were on the road and um, it was kind of early on that people weren't making full on decisions yet. It was just right. like a weird time. Should we go? Should we not? Like, it feels weird. Um, and Abby was actually the one, our whole team was sitting around just gathering. What do we do? What do we do? And she actually was like, this isn't the right thing. It isn't the right thing. So I just want to acknowledge that that is super interesting to me is like, because of the specificity of, of your, where you came from as a, as an artist, you know, somebody who started in a, like, talking about parenting from a like Christian heterosexual perspective, mm-hmm. I have seen the audience that you draw and it mm-hmm. is a really different audience than self-selects to my shows. By the way, like I do really well with your audience. I'm sure you do really well with my mm-hmm. audience. It's just that like, we actually don't get to pick who buys tickets to see us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that is a really interesting part of thinking about this book coming out untamed and like thinking about you being you know more public with your uh relationship with abby even during this time because it's like so much of what you're showing is uh sort of your household right now Mm -hmm. um and you just have this audience that like i again that's who i started when i started in stand up you know you start like you start with everybody that's who i started with was sort of a Mm. uh straight audience or whatever but there but it wasn't necessarily as dominated by women because comedy self-selects male Mm. a little bit um i guess i just what you're able to do and who you're able to bring in is fascinating to me i'm wondering like how much you think about that i'm sure it's a lot like who you are talking to might actually be Mm -hmm. different than who i'm talking to we have different mm-hmm. um, readerships and, mm-hmm. you know, you saying that story, it's like, I can so relate to it. Maybe some straight women have never heard that before that are buying tickets to your mm-hmm. show because they, they're mm-hmm. somebody who identifies as a Christian and they also love that you're funny and fun. Mm-hmm. What is that like as a responsibility? Yeah, How well, often is that in your mind? Oh, constantly. I mean, it was certainly in my mind right before Love Warrior came out. And Mm -hmm. I told my team that I was going to announce that I was leaving my husband and marrying Abby. And everyone thought that, I mean, my my team, a very important person on my team turned to me and said, you can do this, but this will be career suicide. It will be over. You you can't, they will, they will not accept this. Like this is, so, um, so that was interesting. I mean, I just had this serious hunch that that was not true. That people are a little bit better than we give them credit for. And that, I mean, not fundamentalist Christians. They're not necessarily better than we give them credit for. <laughs> Heard. <laughs> right? I, I'm serious. Like, I'm not, I'm, I mean, you know, you know. But like the the freaking, I mean, Cameron, after that time, there were entire, like, I would open up the internet and there would be official, like, whatever this means, like, official letters of entire denominations excommunicating me from their denomination publicly. 
But like, I wasn't even part of their denomination. Like I felt like Kramer from Seinfeld where he's like, you can't fire me. I don't even work here. Like what is happening? <laughs> right? So, so there was some of that, but um, I don't know what, what I feel like with my audience that sometimes makes me sad is how long and involved I've been in, in uh, anti-racist movements and how freaking white my audience is. That sometimes surprises me. But then I always think, okay, it's not my job to get black women to listen to me. It's my job to get white women to listen to black women, <laughs> right? Yeah. So then I just try to use that time to like point to other people. But um, yeah, I mean, my audience is largely, uh, I mean, Abby calls it soccer mom land, <laughs> you know, which, you know, those women have a, a, a serious place to to play in this um, world and they have been relentlessly supportive of me and Abby. And, and what sometimes I think it's so interesting because sometimes I think the best work that Abby and I can do in that lane with my people, it's never like my speeches or my activism, although that helps. It's like me showing little videos of Abby and I cooking. It's like, everyone's like, oh my God, that's like us. You know, I do know. Actually, so I really know. I really, really know, know from you know lived experience. I, I uh, too have have wondered the same thing. I guess I want to ask you about how it would feel emotionally. A couple years ago, I took a photograph of there was these, there were these dudes in my neighborhood, my old neighborhood, who would put up a nativity set, one of those plastic light up nativity sets. It had two Josephs because they were gay dudes. I love, I took a photograph mm -hmm. of this. I put it on my own Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. and it went viral on Facebook to the degree mm -hmm. that the archbishop of Rhode Island put out an official statement about my photo and how it, um, you know, disparaged the holy family and i i just like first in some ways this was actually like appreciated because i had not been going to catholic services you know i had not been i assumed correctly that since i had been checking like look i would look back i would look in you know checking at the pope okay he's like a little bit okay on environmental issues does he think women aren't people still yes does he still right. think i'm inherently going to hell 100 okay well then like just checked in and then i popped back out so it was actually helpful to get this direct statement so that i could remember where the church's priorities continue mm -hmm. to lie like great point like on the on the list of yes. priorities like this is you know this plastic light up nativity has to be up there amongst the top yes <laughs> so i just felt like fantastic um but it hurt me personally because i'm like cheat like i'm just like this is like ah oh, like i'm still a person that took a photo i was okay. excited about so how do you like as a human how do you hold that space for that how do you like how do you hold space for being excommunicated by the denominations you're not a part of what do you do with that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know what we do. We do human. Yes. <laughs> like, what the fuck? We do therapy. Yes. We do yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There, listen, here's some good news. Let me tell you this news, okay? Since the day Untamed came out, 
It has been number one on Amazon in Christian self. I did see this. Cameron, <laughs> I don't care about anything else. All I do is check Amazon <laughs> relentlessly to make sure it's still number one in Christian self. Okay. So I don't know what that's about. It makes me so excited to think of all those Christians just buying the gay book. I don't know. It's hopeful to me. And if nothing else, it's completely hilarious. But I think like, look, Abby and I have this thing going on where it's like, do we hate religion? Do we love religion? Do we hate faith? I think we actually really, really both deeply have this weird faith. Um, but it's like, it's like you have this, you have this thing inside of you that's like a spark or like this thing that swells inside of you that has something to do with God or the divine, or I don't know, it's something that's just bigger than you. And then when you're little, you go to religion, it makes me feel like it's like, it's like having an artist spark inside of you. And then going to a class where somebody sits you down and they're like, color inside these lines. And if you don't color inside these lines, you will be hurt and I will smack you and I will shame you for the rest of your life. And that is art. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. So So then after a while, you're so traumatized and you're so shamed and you, you have been so mistreated that you think you're not an artist, but you were not, you were always an artist. You just, got this really horrible bad class on this shit and then and these people that were teaching it had no idea what they were talking about and like for me the fact that i'll tell you this is what i think is inexcusable okay i find it completely inexcusable that any parent with the level of consciousness we should have right now okay would put their children in those sort of shaming, traumatizing, religious experiences. That is something that's very hard for me to stomach as a mother, as a human being. Um, and, the, and, the, and the funny thing is, you know, since I'm in this space of like um, the Venn diagram of like faith person and um, whatever I am, like in a same gender marriage, I don't know what I am actually, but um, people write to me all the time about these, you know, their kids coming out and they've been in churches and they've been in whatever. And they're so sad now because their kids have been listening to this shit forever from the pulpits. And then they come out. And it's too effing late. Like it's too late to wait until your kid is or isn't. So then what you go and try to, you know, real quick bandage up the scars that this kid has been suffering with alone forever it's too late i mean you can try but like those god wounds they take forever i mean abby so for a while we figured out maybe like a year ago that okay how do i explain this abby's like furiously mad at a god she doesn't believe in yeah which is a difficult place to be yeah (laughs) right so which which I was trying to like dissect with her the idea that if you're really furious at something, you probably have some idea that it exists, right? Um, 
And so what we figured out is that she, at a very young age, she, as a little gay kid in a Catholic church, she felt like she was given a choice, right? That she could choose God and church and her mom, or she could choose herself, right? And she chose herself and her selfness, keeping her selfness has required her to spend her whole life saying, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you to God, right? That is, I'm proud of her. Like that is what it took. And But the thing that I think is true is that I don't think that at a young age she chose herself instead of God in church. I feel certain that she chose herself and God instead of church, right? That she was unbelievably wise and spiritual at a very young age and figured out actually this church stuff is horseshit and I'm going to die if I believe in it. But I just feel like there's a difference between believing in church and believing in God. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I ask about this because I hear, especially since releasing this book, but like, I just hear about this anyway, because it's, I do talk so much about the, um, you know, the fact that I wanted to be a priest. And one thing that, that, that strikes me as always strange is when I will post something sort of about maybe a little bit more in the category that you're talking about of like, um, it's a spirituality thing. It's like a spirit thing. And um, invariably someone will in the comments put um, like direct folks to a denomination or a church that they, that they think supports queer folks or that they experience as supporting queer folks. And um, I have to remember like that it's not always about me, um, even if it is my platform. Because my response to that, just on an emotional level, is usually just like, get the fuck out of here with this. Like, for mm -hmm. me, I am not able to be there. I'm just, I felt so hurt and disappointed when I saw that the, the faith that I was, like, not just, like, raised in, but, like, committed to as an access point to the divine was actually a corporation that seals its wealth through patriarchy colonialism and abuse i was literally like wait what like and i get that some people always knew this like i get that some people knew this about the church the whole time for me i literally was reading the you know documents as a theology major and i was going wait like literally like wait what you know like it would to me it was a full stop um shocking moment and so i just have this sort of um you know i just don't think like, I'm not there yet. Maybe someday I'll be there, but I'm not there yet where I'm like, I just, every denomination feels like a fucking Scooby-Doo villain where I'm like, just the masks are going to come off. And that's not, that's not, there are queer people who do the work. You know, there are people I trust who do the work, who are, who work in a pastoral sense. That, for me, that is not, I can't, I cannot go back there um, right now. And it's fucking yeah. done for me. Well, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And I have no idea whether my um i my whether that will change yeah you know i'm open to that changing but i also feel like i know too much <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean that again i hope i actually like please make me wrong on this 
please present, I, I, you know, not you, but the universe, please present, you know, the thing. But I, yeah. but I don't, but it's just not there for me right now. I also want to, because I just keep taking little notes on things I want to make sure to cover. Okay. So we got God a little bit. Well, I'm sure we'll come back, we but it's, we it's it. part, yeah. it's actually part of all of this. You were talking about the feeling of um, the drugs involved with uh, love. And, you know, another thing that I have said for years, because people will ask me, like, they'll try to talk to me after I'm on stage. Um, and I have to say to people, like, I'm very strange right now. I am on drugs. I'm experiencing drugs in my body because like <laughs> the amount of adrenaline and like endorphins mm -hmm. that I have currently right like like I'll do a meet and greet after and I'm just I'm trying so hard to have like a normal face because be normal. I just know that I need to like witness this person who's in front of me but I'm like absolutely jumping out of my skin and mm -hmm. you know as somebody who like you have such a strong presence on stage. You're so good at it. Is that something that you thought would be part of writing for you? Like, did you think, and then this will lead to I'm on stage? No. And I'm going to tell you, Cameron, that it thoroughly pissed me off at first because truly, and, and I've, I've talked to other writers who feel kind of felt this way. Like it feels like a Scooby-Doo thing. Like you think you're a writer, but here's actually what you have to do. Like, so Truly, what? Uh, well, you know, I'm a serious introvert. As a matter of fact, on day 20 of quarantine, Abby turns me on the couch and goes, "Has your life changed?" At all? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. So I really, when I found writing, and when I found writing that could happen on the interwebs, mm -hmm. I thought I had found the magical thing. Right? Like, here's the thing where I can actually be honest, it felt very much to me, the way that I wrote and, and, and elicited responses from people felt to me kind of like an A meeting. It was like an A meeting I could do at home. Um, it felt safe. Um, I could talk about, you know, like the importance of community without ever having to get together with anyone. And then this thing happens with writing and I don't think it's always been a thing but it was, um, no, 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 now you've got to go become a commercial for your book. Like, you are now a commercial for your book. It's nice that you made that thing, but that was just the first part of your job. And now you have to become a commercial for the art you made, which, by the way, is a whole different skill set. Yes. Right? It's it's like you're a baker, and then they're like, and just real quick, you have to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> like, they're unrelated <laughs> and require different constitutions. <laughs> okay? Uh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, so what you have to do, anyway, so Cameron, I think I told you this story before. I but... do think I know what's coming next, but I would love to, I would, I think okay. the podcast audience needs to hear it. Yes. Continue. Needs to hear that for my first, maybe 10 speaking engagements, I made my sister sit behind me <laughs> in a chair on stage and say no words <laughs> and say nothing. And I never explained what she was doing <laughs> so Cameron I still have people come up to me and be like you're so you're so good at this now like I I came to see you once and there was a woman on stage and it was like she, it was so weird it was like that we were doing a panel but only one of us <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just telling you that story to explain how stressful it was for me you know um 
And slowly I just started doing it the way I do everything else. Just like, well, first of all, I figured out that I didn't have to do like a fancy version of speaking. Like I didn't have to do the thing where I stand up and I say a speech. Okay. I can't do that. You, you've seen me. I can't speak while I'm standing. <laughs> you blow my mind. I don't know how you do it. You walk. You I talk, got standing and speaking. I got, I got it's them too. Freaking crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. I bring a chair. I, I've never spoken without a chair. I sit down. I have to sit. I know my boundaries. Okay. Um, and yeah, I feel like I'm good at it now. It's taken me a long time. But I feel like I'm good at translating my writing voice to the stage, right? Yeah. Um, but Cameron, it's if if you if someday I'll sit down and show you what I go through to give a speech, and it's ridiculous. I mean, I when I sit on a stage and talk, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's just so impromptu, and you just sound like you're so natural." I have memorized every freaking word that I'm going to say. It's pain. That's how I manage my anxiety about speaking. So I write everything out and then I speak the entire thing into an iPhone and then I listen to all the things so many times. Sometimes, Cameron, I give the things, the speeches to my dog <laughs> in my bathroom. So I have to do a lot of things to be a freaking clinically anxious motivation. Can you feel not easy? Can you feel the audience being there on yes. when you're doing it I, and yes. it's my church now. when and when you feel that can you be with them or like do you need to be on your own script inside of you no the only time that i mess like i get really anxious and terrible and sweat and mess up i guess what i would call mess up which is just like lose my way is when I try to stick too much to the thing inside, like mm. the thing I've memorized. So I have to do the thing where I prepare the living hell out of it and then get on stage and just completely let go of it, which is a very yeah. weird thing. That that actually makes uh, all the sense in the world to me. You know, I asked you a bunch of these questions and it's like, it's funny, it, it does feel it's so specific to being a writer right now, but it also is not because I feel that more than ever before, sort of anybody in any field is being called to do this double duty of like, we also are the brand that's representing the, you know, the, the job that we do um, for, for so many people. And it is very strange. You know, I, I uh, feel this way too, that there's there's just a lot of extra work in terms of learning that is required right now because we are not necessarily at a time of um, specialists. We're more at a time of everybody has to be a jack of all trades. So even if you are mm -hmm. a specialist, like you, you could be the, um, you know, you have to like, okay, you're a specialist on the pandemic. You actually also have to be good for television, you know, or whatnot. Yes. And that, and that's just true of, like of so many different jobs right now. And it, it is something that makes this all very complicated because some of the reasons that we got into, I got into stand up because I do not like to sit down and fucking write by myself. Like, like mm. I want to actually fucking have to stay home, you know, like, and, it, and not just this, but also in the world, in the job I created for myself, because, you know, Cameron, Cameron, 
I should write our book. Great. <laughs> and you should go Sounds out great. and promote it. Sounds them. great. Sounds great. Sounds great. Sounds great. You know, when I was, I, I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but it is fucking true. You want to talk about sisters? Okay. My, my, I have an older sister who is a lawyer. She, um, mm-hmm. she also is, she's a modern dancer. She was, she, when we, li- we lived together in Chicago and she was a lawyer who also worked in corporate America at the time. Um, so like one, and she, and she also had her own modern dance company. So one night mm-hmm. she would also run lights and sound at my first ever stand-up show, which there was like a ladder and then you couldn't even sit up. There was no, no, it was not enough room for you to have a chair. So she would just like essentially be on her belly running lights and sound. Then she got up the next morning and audited the federal reserve is a real thing, you know, like, because she, she worked at a huge accounting firm. She then made a change in her life and moved into the arts and nonprofit sector. So she now is a high profile um, arts, foundation executive she writes she runs an arts foundation and went and is a lawyer she's this incredibly impressive person when i was in grad school she's a very fast typist i would dictate my papers to her i was briefly in grad school i did not continue she probably (laughs) would have ended this relationship this part of our relationship but I would pace back and forth and I, she, it, we just, it was essentially what you and I just did. She, she said, you know, like this part, I can do this part. It's very fast. It's honestly better for both of us. If right. you just if write, just you just have to say the paper out loud and I'll write it. Mm, I love that. That's a good story. A, that is a sister. This is a sister. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, is what it is. Yeah. Um, mm. So, so I wanted to ask you about, because there was a moment in the conversation where you, um, like, you know, you were maybe about to use a word to describe yourself and then you like, <laughs> I don't even know, you know, and there was a real, uh, tossing up of the hands. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. and, uh, what is, what is the, what is your feeling there in terms of identity? And, and if the answer is that it's a tossing up of the hands, what is it like to, you know, take public space? And manage right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I can only tell you things that I know. Um, I don't, I really only understand my every decade of my life. Like I can't live my life and understand it at the same time. I have to live some years and then kind of look back and understand them. This is why I write a book every like, six years or so. Um, so I'm assuming I'll have some more clarity on this, like next Tuesday, <laughs> it's like coming. I'm sure it's on its way, but, um, but I can only tell you that, you know, in the very beginning after Abby and I first got together, all anybody ever asked me in an in interview or, or, or my friends or would say, you know, okay, so like, what are you, what are you, um, and so I used to sit with Abby and say, we are going to figure this out. Like, I need to have an answer. We have to figure out what I am, you know? Um, but I can just tell you some stories. Like, first of all, bisexual doesn't sound right to me because I have to tell you the truth. I never really liked sex with guys. I think I was acting my whole life. Like, I just thought this is as good as it gets, I guess. It's not really my favorite thing. 
Um, I don't really understand what the big deal is about, but I guess I'll continue to do it because I used to describe it to my sister as like the oil change of a relationship. Like you just have to keep doing it <laughs> so that things oh, keep running smoothly. I, mean, I know. Well, Glennon, there's it's also, so sad. you know, I, I, it is heartbreaking. And I, I just have to say that like, because we, um, I have a bunch of friends who, not a bunch, I have several friends who um, did the marriage to a man, kids, um, and then realizing what's going on, you know, queer story. But I feel like that story is so unrepresented in like uh, queer culture today. Like we really don't talk about, first of all, that used to be like the only way we had kids or, you know, whatever. We didn't, we weren't able to adopt. We weren't, we didn't, we weren't using sperm donors unless it was like some sort of under the table agreement. Like that's, those were, that's how we were making families was that people were having this sort of relationship. And then, um, and so it's, it's also part of our history, you know, like this is not some anomaly. It's part of our history that we don't, 100% talk about because like folks were so shamed um, and we didn't necessarily acknowledge the living situations that they were in then when they found out more information about mm. who they were. So it's a part of our history. It was also part of our present that we don't talk about very much, which is this sort of um, like atypically represented, but not a typical story of like, I'm actually already this person and then I'm also this person. And I, Anyway, I just wanted to say, like, I think that this is not such a wild story because for, well, for how all, it intersects with our community. Fear. Well, that feels good to me. I mean, I think I have some fear because I don't know how to say this. Like, it, like sometimes how I'm not Christian enough for Christian people, I feel like I'm not, I'm too new to the gay community for like, there's a lot of like, you're not a real one of us, you know? Um, and so I get nervous about how, what words to use and all of that. I mean, I, w I can tell you this story is that last year I was talking to my friend from college and she said, so do you think you were always gay or do you think that you were always, and I said, well, I don't know. I said, I, you know, I always thought that, you know, women were more attractive than men. And I always thought that like women's bodies are much more attractive than men, but like everyone thinks that. And she was like, no, they don't. <laughs> she goes, I don't think that. And I was like, what? Like, Karen, I seriously. And then I was like, well, this is why we should talk about serious things more. Okay. Because I just thought that clearly <laughs> Everyone felt that way. So I don't know, Cameron. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I grew up in suburban Northern Virginia. I didn't know a single gay person my entire freaking life. I never saw it as an option. I never, you know, this is freaking weird, but I became really severely bulimic when I was 10 years old, like really, really young. And when Abby went to talk to my mom about proposing to me, the first thing my, my mom burst out crying and she said, 
Abby, I have not seen my daughter this alive since I was since she was 10 years old. And all I can tell you, I don't know, but I just have this like feeling that there is a lot of things when I was a young kid that I subconsciously knew I couldn't be and that it made me really sick and really far from myself for a very long time, you know, which is what I, and, and, and maybe this is one of them. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know that I, I also had like, I have that experience. I have that, I have the actual experience of, um, using like obsessive, um, and disordered eating to try to transform the body that I didn't understand because it didn't make sense to me what was going on around me. So I understand why that might be a, a read that you have on that, because that's a read that I have on my own, you know, past. And, and I will also say that it's, you know, some of what you're talking about, this like litmus text testing for, you know, who gets to be part of the community. It's, it's wild how um, obsessed with that um, the queer community is. I will just say we are like, we are obsessed with, I, yesterday or two days ago or whatever, there was this like New York Times piece about a bunch of people that claim butch identity. And I posted a bunch of photographs of myself mm -hmm. and it was a, a joke that also, where I also spoke about my, my own, um, like I just said, butch, like, I, like this is a feeling that I, I feel that way. That's a feeling that mm. I feel. And, you know, you know who tells me I'm um, not feminine enough? Everybody, like, just be me walking down the street. But I post this thing where I say that I'm masculine, where, like, I claim a, a sort of butch identity, masculine identity. And a bunch of people were telling me, in the, literally, first of all, somebody told me I was TV butch, which, like, really made me have, like, a full gasp. Because I want to say, if you think that I am TV butch, you should come to Hollywood. Because um, I'll tell you who's TV butch. It is, like... uh. Who is the most feminine? It is like Anne Hathaway. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> like somebody that's ever eaten a piece of toast. Like, I just mean like our understanding in Hollywood of like what makes masculine and femininity is as fucked up as it is everywhere. And our insistence that masculine and femininity or that personal history means that we can or can't claim identity is something that we learned elsewhere. And then when we mm -hmm. stepped into the queer community, we paused for a tiny second. You know what I'm going to go ahead and bring with me? My need to uh, judge other people and label them. Because I, I had that before, but I'm going to go ahead and bring it right in here. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just can't leave that at the door. You know? And so, like, I just, I think it's fine. I think it's just fucking fine. If you don't have the answer, if you ever come up with the answer and you want to tell me, if it's next Tuesday. you know next Tuesday in full few decades from now, feel free to text um, if that feels fun yes. and helpful. But if you don't have any more information, <laughs> that's fine with me too. Um, I mean, there's got to be there's got to be room for I don't know, right? Maybe that's a category. Like maybe that's a thing. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I know like that I finally for the first time feel that thing that I thought I would never have in my life that I thought that I mean Cameron I used to say shit like you know love is like a light and some people are laser lovers and I'm like a floodlight I just love everyone a little bit like that I never thought that I would so 
I don't know. All I know is that I am so freaking grateful that I get to have this thing, this love thing, and that I'm so freaking grateful that sex makes sense to me now and that I that I get it <laughs> now. <laughs> and um, so I know I'm not straight. That's all I know. <laughs> no, I'm not straight. Perfect. Um, what a response to the phrase, I know I'm not straight, by the way, too. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> um, Glennon, it is almost time for us, for me to send you back into your day. Uh, I realizing, I am realizing now I forgot to warn you of this before the thing. So if you need a second, you can let me know. But I always ask our guests to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. And mm. if you would like to shout out a queero, um, that would, I would love to hear it. Yeah, I would love that. Queero, you're the best. I forgot that word that you use. Well, listen, this is going to sound, I mean, I can't, I cannot choose a queero that's not my wife. Like, I... Well, I th this is a woman, you know, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing. And this is one thing that I understand about the resentment of, of people who have been in this community for a long time compared to people like me who like just got here yesterday. Okay. Because this is a conversation that Abby and I had earlier. She was talking about church shame or something. And I was like, I just don't, I don't feel any of that. Like, I just feel really confident and free and you know, I just don't know what, what, why? And she was like, honey, your freedom, okay? Your little freedom that you feel and your shamelessness. There's a lot of people who have been showing up for a lot of decades to earn for you that shamelessness and freedom that you feel right now, right? So, you know, when I think about her being, you know, one of the first out athletes and like, you know, people used to scream at her. I mean, I will start crying thinking about it, but, you know, during her college games, people would just scream slurs at her on the field from the first minute to the last minute. Like it was, and I just, I'm amazed by her, the way that she has shown up for so long um, and has kept all of her goodness and sweetness. And um, yeah, she's, She's for sure my queer. That's amazing. 100%. Uh, I love that. And you know what else is funny about what you're saying is that I like, I just don't think I've ever said before on the podcast, but like, here's, here's what I'm really thinking about. It's like, it's like, we have to always, always like look to our queer elders who sometimes might even be younger than us who have done fucking the fight. Like we have to, like, I, I really so believe in that. I also think about this, like, I think about it in terms of politics, you know, it's like, we have to absolutely, in my mind, like, look at the folks who, like, knocked down the doors to begin with. And then there's that part of, like, the person who's just coming in now. And, like, of course, like, we, I just think we always want that person to acknowledge and know the history and, like, you know, but it is also a true gift when people come in and they're like, they're a fresh perspective because that, those are also the people that come in, look around and go, have y'all ever thought of this? 
And sometimes it gets very annoying, you know, like, I will just say this as me, like, I've been like, I just been, I, this is not even, this is not directed toward you. It's like, toward like the, you know, like, I'm out for 20 years. I look at the young influencer who's like 15 and they're like, I am the fucking queerest queer, you know, like queer. And I'm like, yo, congratulations. And I can get in my own, you know, thing of it. Like, I don't even think you fucking get it, man. When I was 15, I was wearing Steve Madden's, yo. Like, congratulations that you fucking figured it out. I was wearing knee socks, my dude. You know, like I can get very sort of in the, you know, and I have to just remember it's like, this this is also the person who's going to teach you about something about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, this yeah. is the person who's and like telling like, me that like, it, that like gender norms can go the fuck out the window. Like I didn't hear that. And sometimes I have to hear that from the newer person to the table. And it just like, if I, you know, if I insist on only looking at our history, which I fucking love to do, then I'm very mm-hmm. frequently going to miss the new information that's coming in th- that applies to me and helps me. I love that. I love the info of that. I mean, we have it in our house, Cameron, because our, our our son came up to us. Did you know that? This is a very, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, several months ago. Um, and he's just, I mean, Cameron, this boy. Oh, he's so freaking amazing. And he's on fire, and he is the gayest gay that ever gayed. <laughs> and so every, and so Abby's just like, fine, you're the expert. <laughs> That's that's part of. Don't ask me any questions. Not like I have any life experience that can be of use here. Like that's what it is, and it's so precious and so wonderful, and we want it. But it's the same vibe as like, you know, in the in the feminist world, it's like all we do is say women are entitled to a voice, and then like these twenty year olds come and we're like they're so entitled, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's like. We've been hazed, so we want them to be hazed. But like the I, the great thing would be is if we just didn't have any of the hazing anymore. Sure, um, or just be you know like I'm gonna just just for today I'm gonna let myself be so fucking crotchety if I need to be, and then I'll just like use that till it's help till it's been helpful, and then I'll go ahead and put that down. You know what I mean? Like I'll that's absolutely. I, like I will be that. petty if I need to be petty. If my neighbors are playing mm-hmm. music again, I will put a speaker in my window playing music back at them, which is something I've done during the pandemic. <laughs> I, I will I do it. it yes, <laughs> do it if I need to do it. Uh, but I, but then after, I will just go ahead and put that down, and I will not continue. You know, just we can. Uh, that feels doable. I like that better. <laughs> That's good, Glennon. It is a true pleasure to speak with you and huge congratulations on the success of Untamed. I am incredibly excited to see its continued success. I know that, that um, this has been a really tough time, but you're, it's been incredibly inspiring watching you represent your project and like really with the passion that you have. So thank you for letting us see that and congrats on the beautiful book. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you. And congrats on Save Yourself. We love you. We love you so much. Yeah. Love you too. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.